I felt so grateful for this thing called running that has really shaped my life ever since I took that first crazy run. Welcome to the Shakeout Podcast. I'm your host, Kate Van Buskirk. In this episode, we speak with Olympian and coach Lynn Kanuka. Lynn was recently named Canada's greatest female distance runner by Paul Gaines in our January-February issue of Canadian Running Magazine. Lynn won medals at the World University or FISU Games, Commonwealth Games, World Cross Country Championships, and the 1984 Olympics. She set nearly a dozen national records from 1983 to 1989 and still holds the Canadian 10K road record. Now the coach to distance standout Natasha Wodak, Lynn was named Sport BC's Female Coach of the Year in 2019. She continues her engagement in our sport as a sitting board member of Athletics Canada. I connected with Lynn earlier this month to chat about her storied career. Well, hi, Lynn. We're so glad that you're joining us. And first of all, congratulations on your recent title of Canada's Greatest Distance Runner in Canadian Running Magazine. Oh, it's a pleasure as always. And and Paul Gaines is a a, a friend way back, you know, and uh, I so appreciate he's so knowledgeable in the world of sport and we can appreciate, you know, his passion and so on. And so I feel really honored and privileged to have that title. That's really something amidst many amazing performances. So, Lynn, you're joining us from what is today, I'm assuming, sunny Vancouver which is a, a bit strange. It It is. Apparently, there's been a lot of rain. I've been sort of out and about in other places. But um, today is a fabulous day and the sun is coming in. I live in little old White Rock, which is kind of a seaside town south of Vancouver. And uh, yes, it's a privilege to be here today and most days, actually. I love it here. And do you run most days there? I, You know, I can't run every day. I've learned that you know, just like I'm a consummate coach, of course, but listen to your body, you know, and I, if I could, I would, it's on a day like today, I look out there and if I can even just find 20 minutes and just go putter along the ocean, it's the most wonderful way to spend a bit of time. But um, I would say I run every other day on average, probably something like that. I mean, I've probably never enjoyed my running more, honestly, mm-hmm. because it's just, it's just a peaceful thing. It helps me Every day is a better day if I've been able to move and especially if I've been able to run. And I think a lot of people can relate to that now more than ever with all of this time we're spending solo and inside and um, just taking that time to get out and move. I know that one of your mantras is that movement is medicine. And I think that's been proven true more so now than probably ever for a lot of people. It is wonderful to see, you know, the activity out there, Uh, whether it's people doing stairs, hills, you know, Nordic walking on the boardwalk like I it's it's really it's inspiring and I people know that they're doing some good for themselves so and it is it's one good one good side of a really challenging time. Lynn grew up in Regina Saskatchewan and got her athletic start as a speed swimmer. She says that her parents got their kids into sports really young mainly to keep them out of trouble. Lynn swam competitively for years but her interest for it waned in her early teens. A couple of years went by, and she realized that she missed the competitive outlet and regular exercise. And so I decided to run, you know, from my home along Wascana Parkway out to the university and back. And it was about maybe a couple K, not even 1500 meters out there. 
and back. So not far, not far, but it was for me. But I think back, nobody was doing such things. Nobody at that time would go out in minus 30 and run along the parkway, you know, and we didn't have, I certainly didn't have any gear that was running gear really, you know, but I loved it. It was, it was, it was my thing. And, you know, the thing that I remember most, because this is what happens to me is I think then of my, my father, my parents, super supportive of us as kids always. And he, I grew up in a smoking, drinking, fun, loving prairie family, you know, and super supportive of sports, but fitness was not a thing. Sport was a thing, but not fitness. And, uh, my dad comes home from work just as I was kind of bundling up to go outside. And he was, he says, what are you doing? You know, I said, I'm going to run out to the university and back. And he could have said, why would you do that? But he didn't. And actually he said, huh, you know, he says, why don't you wait a few minutes and I'll come with you. And it's crazy because also me as a teenager, my dad, seriously, would have normally just gone into the kitchen with my mom. They got their smokes. They're going to have a rum and Coke together, really. And he says, I'm going to go with you. And I didn't say, what? why would you do that? So he wore his boots and whatever, and we trundled outside and he was huffing and puffing because he's not a runner. And we go out to the university, we make it there. And then I go to turn back and he says, well, we're all the way out here why don't you just run up and down that hill? Well, in Regina, it's flat as a pancake. It's a garbage dump hill that's covered with snow. They put dirt over it. And I didn't argue with him. I ran up and down that hill a bunch of times. And then we ran back. And I think back, like it gives me goosebumps, honestly, inside, because pivotal things happen in one's life. And for me, I don't know what happened, but I thought, I wanted to be a runner. That was my first interval session. I mean, and then the, from there, the coach at the school heard that I was doing some running. And so he recruited me for the cross country program. And I was really quite successful right away. I'm a competitor. I killed myself out there. I don't know if I liked it. I liked the effort of it. And I found myself going to provincials that year and the nationals. So it was an amazing time, but who knew, like, I would have never imagined that I would continue and, you know, that life would take shape because of that, that running along Waskana Parkway in minus 30. Do you think that that was um, reflective of who you were as a young woman at that time? Like, was, you said your dad was a bit surprised that you wanted to run. It sounds like partly because that's not something you'd done before, but also, the way that I've heard, you know, the 70s described is that it's not as if it is today where everyone is out to be a marathoner or a runner. So although that sounds like it was a bit unusual for those reasons, he also, like you said, didn't argue with you. And he, in fact, encouraged you and said, I'll come with you. Was that just part of who you were, do you think? It is, for sure. I'm very spontaneous about things. And I, I don't have a grand plan, necessarily. I just do things. And I really feel like when you sort of follow your, just your instincts, you know, some sort of excitedness, passion, call it whatever it is, then stuff happens, whether it's from a feeling inside and then externally doors open when you're, when you're, and this is about life. It's not about, um, I am philosophical. It's about 
sport in this way, but sport to me is life. It just sort of, you learn so much and it applies to everything that you're doing. And so I think that's really how I do things. Lynn's early success with her high school cross-country team caught the attention of local club coach Larry Longmore. Her success continued under his guidance, but she didn't see a future for herself as a high-performance athlete. It wasn't until her time at the University of Saskatchewan, under another influential coach, Lyle Sanderson, that she really considered her potential in the sport. Then he said... Lynn, we've got to get you out of the cold weather. I wasn't, it wasn't that I didn't like the cold weather, but I was thinking about being a doctor. I was doing all these science courses and you come out of a lab at 5 p.m. and it's minus 40 and I've still got studying to do and what have you. And I, I didn't run consistently. I wasn't committed, you know, I wasn't. I would go to the indoor practices because they were on the schedule. But when it said, you know, have an easy run day. If it was like that, I didn't always do it. And he said, you could really do something. And I think you could get your education paid for. And he has, as a coach, encouraged me to go where I might improve my running and get my education. So that's hard to do as a coach to tell an athlete you're coaching to leave, you know, and he could have coached me and he did coach me. But anyway, I wound up in you know, San Diego and California. And that was nuts at that time. My, my parents, again, back to my parents, you're going where to school? They didn't understand what was happening. And really, I kind of, I don't know that I did either. I just sort of, and this is not how athletes get scholarships now. It's so tough this way now. I just went to the library and found letters that I could mail my quote resume, mail my resume to literally. And I thought, where would I like to go? Oh, California, maybe Florida, maybe Arizona. You know, I sent my resume off and a bunch of stuff happened, but I wound up in San Diego. So, but that coach, Mr. Fred LaPlante, you know, all these people, right, had a play in my, in the direction and the guidance and yeah. Lynn made her first national team in 1979, competing for Canada at the World Cross Country Championships in Limerick, Ireland. She said that this was the first glimpse into what a career as an elite athlete might look like. Four years later, she made her international track debut at the first ever World Track and Field Championships in Helsinki. Tell us about that experience competing in the first ever IAAF World World, uh, Track and Field Championships. Wow, I get I do get filled with um just this great feeling. It was Helsinki in Finland was a fabulous place to go. Like they hosted having now been to several world championships, they did host an amazing event and I think I was um like a stargazer. I'm like, am I really here? It was a bit I guess overwhelmed could be the word, but not really. I was excited. I wanted to be there. And I certainly there weren't, I didn't have really any expectation. I the goal was just maybe I can make the final, you know, and being around all, you know, the incredible athletes around the world. um, It's so important for young athletes. If, if we can take, you know, the largest possible teams to such things it's so important because the experience you gain and just understanding how everything works, if you're going to stay in the sport and improve and have any chance at, you know, that super high level, it's really important that you have those experiences under your belt, not to just be overwhelmed for the very first time, you know, 
ideally you have more experiences than that, but it was an amazing, amazing experience. And of course, my own experience as an athlete was, it was great. Yeah. So at that point with the Olympics, just a year away, I mean, that was in, in 83, you competed at the first uh, world championships. You also won a bronze at the world student games. I mean, these are big successes on the world stage. You must have had at that point, I'm assuming the next year's Olympics in your mind. Uh, you know, again, it's a little bit bizarre. I Fizu was huge for me. I love that experience. And that truly is like a mini Olympics for students. Everything you go through is like the Olympic Games. But what happened was I graduated from university that year, 80, that's 83. And yes, the Olympics were the following year. But I graduated and I was, I had been injured. And I did have in my collegiate career, as much as it was a great experience as an athlete, it was, it was difficult because I spent a lot of it. I never had a summer other than the year of Fizu. I never had a, a summer track season. I had to race a lot. I never knew my potential. I would run 15, three and 5,000 meters in one weekend, you know, and I would do the relays as well. The medley relays. I mean, and the, the philosophy was, you know, well, Lynn, we just, we need you to place in the top six. If you can do sixth place, that's going to give us enough to win or whatever it was. Even if I was capable of winning the race, I would hold back because I then had to run something else, you know? And so I never, and then I would end up injured because it was too much running for me. And so at the end of that, I, I was like, well, I'm done. I've graduated. I made it to NCAAs, but then I was injured. And I thought, I think I'm going to go back to school. That's really what I thought. It was Lynn's partner at the time, Paul Williams, who encouraged her to keep running. Paul was a fellow Team Canada standout and was training towards his first Olympics, those 1984 Los Angeles Games. And he said, Lynn, he goes, you've never had a chance. He was more frustrated than I about my collegiate experience. He was always like, you've never had a chance to really excel because you're always running so many races. Let's, it's one more year, put off your plans. Let's just see if we can make the Olympics. Lynn decided to give it a shot. She started working with Thelma Wright, yet another accomplished track athlete. In fact, part of Lynn's mission became breaking her new coach's Canadian records. The two women had great synergy, and they put together a training plan targeting the 3,000-meter Olympic qualifying standard. When I really felt like, wow, maybe I can really run, was we, of course, had to try to get Olympic standard. And uh, I don't know what I'd run for 3,000 meters at that point, maybe 9 15 or something and with not a whole lot of months of training went out there the standard we had to run under nine minutes or something so I ran you know 859 in short order and I remember just thinking that wasn't even that hard I, I didn't have I had to do it basically by myself in Seattle and and I'd qualified now you know that's when even now I think wow I could be going to the Olympics and then we had to do the trials and everything but um, of course, I, I made it. And it was like a little feeling inside, like, I don't know, again, I don't know what I can do, but uh, I know I have a lot more. Just starting to crack into that potential. 
Yeah. And training went so well leading up to the games. And then before the games, I mean, I was this unknown Canadian. I mean, there was no pressure on me whatsoever other than what I might put on myself. And uh, you're now just about the work's done. It's like whatever it is, three weeks before the games or something. We go out to Burnaby to um, Swan Guard Stadium. I had a little training group with three university guys, actually, one high school guy and three university guys. And we went out there to do a time trial, a 3K time trial. And I ran 8.42. And it was actually the fastest time that had been run in the world so far for women, you know, and it was the Canadian record unofficially. And um, we were just over the moon. And, and <laughs> Thelma was pregnant with her second child. And I thought she was going to have her baby right on the track. She was running across, giving me splits, yelling, Lynn, keep it going. Oh, my God, you're running so fast. You know, it was, and she's on it and all that. And I was like, slow. I'm telling her, stop running. But I'm running on the track. <laughs> it was really something. And we went out and celebrated again. And we were so excited. I was so excited. I was like, well, let me add it. I mean, they, whatever is going to be run, I can I can be in that race. I'm going to be in the race. So I was confident and excited and, you know, the rest was a great experience. Well, yeah. And so that's incredible. I mean, what an improvement, first of all, especially in a time trial. I think most of our listeners will appreciate the significance of that and how hard that is to do, but really spoke to, like you said, your fitness and your preparation and must have just, as you mentioned, filled you with confidence. But the 84 Olympics are so fascinating and the women's 3000 in particular, partly because this was the first year that women were even allowed to run that far in the Olympic Games, which is kind of wacky to wrap our heads around now. And I believe it wasn't until 92 that the 5000 was added for women. Did you feel in a real way that there was prejudice against female athletes in terms of their capabilities and, and recognizing that this was a fairly pivotal year with allowing you to run as far as 3000 meters? It just, I think all I remember is I think it, it just felt ridiculous to think that, you know, it could possibly be that whoever they are, the powers that be thought that we couldn't run these distances, you know, but I don't think I didn't, I wasn't some crusader. I didn't do any sort of fighting for it in that regard. I just had made it in the distance and wow, imagine we'd never been able to run this far before. And of course it was uh, so exciting. The women's marathon was incredible story with Joni Benoit Samuelson. And then of course, yes, the three K was wrought with all kinds of drama and excitement. People still know about it. Anybody in my generation, people remember that race, not for who won or anything except for the big fall. That's what people remember. The fall. Yeah. The women's 3,000 meter in LA was steeped in controversy. Not only was it the first time that women were allowed to compete in that event at the Olympics, the race itself was billed as an epic showdown between American star Mary Decker and Zola Budd of South Africa, who is notorious for racing barefoot. South Africa was banned from the Olympics that year, part of an international boycott against the apartheid regime. Bud, the athlete who posed the greatest threat to Decker's victory, was allowed to compete for Great Britain, thanks to her grandfather's British citizenship, a highly contentious loophole that was condemned by human rights advocates. The drama intensified during the race, when Bud and Decker made contact on the home stretch halfway through, 
sending the American sweetheart sprawling onto the infield and ending her Olympic dream. I want to know what it was like being a competitor and how aware you were of all of that kind of unfolding in front of you. And then, of course, you went on to win the bronze medal. So can you walk us through that race? Oh, sure. I mean, it was that hype was huge. You know, it was all anybody was talking about. And the even just around the games, like the the media, there were, of course, many, many other events to talk about, but they were always talking about this rivalry. And what I do remember was I was, you know, trying to stay focused on that's fine. They're going to run. OK, you go to the front. I'm going to just stick in there and stay in there the best way I can. That was my strategy was to just be in the race. But we knew you always know things from the earlier rounds, you know. So in the earlier rounds, Mary, she was such a front runner. And even in in heats and semis, like she would normally just lead, just take the pace and stay out of any sort of trouble. And she was really frustrated, honestly. She couldn't she couldn't kind of get away from anybody. And, you know, maybe the rest of the world had caught up somewhat, but also I honestly think she'd been wrought with some injuries that year. And I'm not sure that she was in the form that she had been in 1983, the year before. So we knew that we knew that. And I thought it's not going to be that crazy. I think we can, we can, there's many of us that can handle this pace, you know, What I remember coming out of the call room, oh, like it just, it, it even can send me, it's crazy how you can go there in your, in your mind. But we walked out from the call room into the track and there's other events going on. And once people had a glimpse of Mary Decker at the time coming into the stadium, they just, somebody saw her. And then the next thing you know, it's like, they're just absolutely roaring. It was so deafening in there. And I remember just, going oh my gosh like putting my head down between my knees and thinking and you know how that is too you're an athlete you know you have voices that just talk to you and you have to find the right voices you know and there's this voice that's saying oh my god what am I doing here you could just be at home having coffee watching tv and you're here there's a hundred thousand people course you're here this is what you've worked for you've done this for how many years now this is you've made it Lynn stop that you know get focused find your focus what can you do and it always helps routine helps so do some a's and b's come on do some a's and b's just jog a little stretch a little and then all of a sudden you go okay yes this is what I'm here for you know and then it happened again when the announcer says you know, ladies and gentlemen, would you please be quiet for the start of the 3,000 meters? And then it went from being this loud roar to it was absolutely deafeningly silent. Like it was just like, again, I remember, and then I remember just taking those breaths and just saying, you know, come on, Lynn, this is it. This is it. Let's do this. And the gun goes off and Mary and Zolo Bud went right to the front. And the other thing was she was running in bare feet, which was also a big attention getter, you know, and she was just this little tiny thing. I mean, I wasn't, I was 24. She was, I think, 17 or 18, like just a kid, you know, and she goes out there and they're running, but I was tucked in the right where I wanted to be in the middle of the pack in fifth or sixth place, something like that. 
and we went round and it was fast. It was world record pace right away, but I was into it and I was like, this is great. Oh my gosh, I feel fine. And it's three laps, four laps of something in there. I'm not sure exactly. It was tight though. Like we were bumping and jostling and Mary and Zola were side by side and Mary does a little thing with her foot. Zola has these long lanky legs that just come out behind her and somehow you could see there was a little bump and we were all getting bumped and then in that split second there was like some sort of bump and boom Mary goes down you know it happened so fast a couple of other athletes fell um and didn't get up but I thought I you know it happened but I never imagined that Mary would be down she fell but thought she'd be right back up again and come around another lap and oh my gosh there she is you know down on the ground and it hit me like wow the favorite is out like she's down on the ground and the crowd was booing and there's at least a lap we got so spread out we were tight as a pack and everybody lost focus you know I lost focus there's a lap where I don't remember anything except the booing and then the bell ding 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 and it was like oh my god it's the bell lap Lynn wake up you know arms arms lift up your feet go let's go let's go focus one person's in front of you get by them you know another and then I counted and I could see oh my gosh I was in fourth place and I could see Zola was coming back to me and I thought wow if I catch her I mean like we're on the back stretch you know there's only 300 meters to go and I realized oh if I can hang on but by now everyone's woken up and it looks like sometimes and it's something to learn like for anybody running sometimes it can look like you're further back than you actually are you're you might only be two quick steps and you're suddenly back in the game you know and so you can never think oh I've lost it you haven't there's those two steps you can find it you know I woke up and now we're running fast. We're kicking her. I get by her and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I can, I got to hang on. And I knew my friend Cindy Bremser was not, I could hear, I didn't know who it was until after, but she was closing. Everybody was closing. It wasn't that far, but right at the end, we, you know, we got a lot closer and tighter together. What was going through your head as you crossed that finish line, realizing that you had just won an Olympic medal? I mean, going from, it sounds like, what was it, two years ago, thinking you were going to retire, a year ago, thinking you were going to retire and move on to other things to, you know, in the space of a few months, oh my gosh, I've qualified and maybe I could do something here to crossing the line as an Olympic bronze medalist. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't think it really hit me. It did. I mean, I was, I knew, I knew, and I, I bent over again and catching my breath and I looked up and this was amazing. I looked up in the stands. It was like, I couldn't hear or see anything at that point. It was like, what just happened? And then I looked up and I saw, again, another wonderful mentor in Dr. Jack Taunton. And he and I, the night before, had gone and had pizza and a beer together. And we had gone and gotten our haircuts together. And I saw him and it's most bizarre thing I put my arms up I was like this and Jack he's the only person I saw he's got his arms up and I think I he was close enough that I went Jack I go I like your haircut like 
Isn't that, it's so ridiculous. I like your, your haircut. And, you know, he's like, you just won a bronze medal. And I was like, oh my God. And, uh, you know, it was just a bit of a daze, I think, really. But um, it was an amazing, amazing feeling for sure. I mean, now you're a real professional athlete and you, <laughs> you went on to have um, a, a, an incredibly successful career, 1985 Fifth Avenue Mile champion, um, set the 1500 meter rec- Canadian record also in 1985 of four minutes 0.27, which of course was only broken um, a year ago, I guess going on two years ago now by Gabriella Debuse Stafford. Commonwealth Games, double medalist in 86, more world championships. Again, you doubled at the Olympics in 88. And throughout your career, you set 11 Canadian records, ranging from the 1,000 meter to the 10K on the roads. And in fact, you're still the Canadian 10K road record holder of 3144. That one we got to do something about. Well, one of your athletes is well on her way to doing something about it and in fact has run only slightly faster on the track. But and we're seeing more and more of this now and I'm thinking about folks like Melinda Elmore who has gone from being a 1500 meter Olympian and now 16 years later poised to be on the Canadian Olympic team for the marathon, but you had quite a big range in a, in a shorter time span. I'm wondering what you attribute that to. What what was it about your approach to your running or your training that allowed you to have so much success across such a huge range of events from the pyramid distance all the way to these longer strength events? Yeah, I I mean, I think that to be successful, you do have to at least work on all those components, right? Especially when we're talking about a middle distance like for me the you know, 15-3 and the five was came into the picture towards the end of my career. So to be able to be successful in that mid-range, you have to run some 800s. You've got to run some 400s even, and you've got to have the strength of a 10,000-meter runner. And I don't know if I even was in my best distance in a sense. My, my coach then, a few years later, was Dr. Doug Clement. And after I'd had run in 88 uh he said let's do one more do one more olympics and run the 10,000 and i was somewhat open to it so we started to do a little bit of training in that regard and all it was was a lot longer longer stuff you know and but my heart wasn't in it i remember a workout we were going to do like 8 by 1k or something and i was just bored and the thing about it is it just is that long it just wasn't my nature if in fact if I could have I probably would have been I was probably a frustrated 800 meter runner actually I would have loved to do more of that sort of thing so I think in the end I settled on probably the right distance just because I still ran a few of those 10,000s and uh, I still ran the odd you know 800 and so I just think why? It's because we worked on all those things. And I, I really firmly as a coach believe that you, you can't, you can always extend your, uh, your engine, you can do the engine work, but speed development, and you need some speed, we all know how fast those, you have to be able to find that speed at the end of a middle distance event. And so people can find their well trained athletes find their top end, you know, when they need to. And so you can't just do that 
and hope that it happens. You got to practice it. So I think that's, that's why I had really good coaches. Even my early coaches, my club coach, the first time, Larry, I think of him, we've talked about that. I said, you were ahead of your times. And, you know, I think I was fortunate in that way. And that's, that's then shaped who I am as a coach as well. Well, and I want to ask you more about that because, of course, you're currently coaching our Canadian 10,000-meter record holder, Natasha Wodak, along with the first Canadian woman ever to break 70 minutes in the half marathon. So I want to chat with you about the coaching. But just before we get there, I'd like to go back, Lynn, to something that we discussed uh, last year in St. John about the fact that your 1,500-meter Canadian record stood for over three decades. And of course, Gabriella Debuse-Stafford is just a standout in the mid-distance. But I'm wondering if you can give us some insight about why you think it is that it took over three decades for that record to go down, because we've had some really successful women and, you know, hardworking, talented, experienced female runners, but, and, and some have gotten really close, but for that record to have stood so long, and I don't mean that with disrespect because it was a very, very fast time. So that's part of the answer, but do you have other insights as to why that might be? Well, I think... I mean, I, I don't know what athletes do, all of them, for their for their training, for one thing. But it takes a combination of things in order to reach another level. And so and a lot of the times it takes it takes a it takes a race, you know, so the race has to be a certain kind of race. And it takes the athlete to be able to, you know, really tap into that the confidence that they have in the training that they've done and then translate that at the right, at the right moment. And uh, even if you take uh, Gabby, well, I knew she had what it, what it takes when I was privileged to see her in action at the Fizu games, particularly when I was coaching on the, as a support coach on that team. And uh when I watched her in training, you know, the final kind of key sessions and her strength, you know, mentally, I felt like she had the right, just the, and I didn't know her well, but in any, by any stretch of the imagination, but just the time that I spent with her, I thought this girl has some balance and she's going to be able to pull it out when she really needs to. And she had, great success in those games. And then years later, of course, now it's, I can't believe it's two summers ago already, but when she first broke the record, it was only by a hair, you know, but I thought, oh no, there's more there. She just needs the right, you know, set of circumstances. So it's, it's many things. It's at that level, it's, it is years. You've got to have some years of experience in both training as well as high level racing there has to be the confidence there and there has to be also a limitless kind of attitude too it has to be you you can't be limited by what you may have done in training you've got to just get out there and race like without a watch without any notion even of of splits I even think that might have I don't know this but here it's a thought in my head even the idea that you have to run certain splits in order to run a certain time that, you know, is the case in a time trial or what have you, but for her, Oh my gosh, world championships final, you're just racing. You're not thinking about anything but racing. And that's often what it takes. And those circumstances don't always present themselves. I do think there were a number of athletes 
over the years that could have done it, but just weren't able to. Yeah. And I'm curious about that in terms of like, if there's been any major changes to kind of the sporting landscape, particularly for women in our country over the last several years that may have contributed to that. And I guess one of the things I'm thinking about is, for instance, going back to um, the earlier 2000s, you know, in 2008, we didn't send any mid-distance women to the Olympics, partly because the standards were so <laughs> impossibly tough in Canada that we didn't have, I think there was a missed opportunity around international development there. And maybe that's the era that we might have had some of those women who had the potential to do it, but didn't have the opportunity. Do you think that's a fair assessment? I do. I do. I totally do. And I've, um, in my capacity now and wherever possible, it's so important to send athletes, you know, for experience, you know, even if they're not going to place in that they're not likely to make a final, if there's it, I mean, there are many things that our administrators and our, our national program, they have to consider. And then one of them is whether we have the quote money to do it, you know, and so that becomes a factor, but there is no doubt in my mind from even from a younger age, not super young. I don't, I'm a strong supporter of long-term development concepts, but um you know, at the say, I know a pivotal event for me, for example, as a younger athlete was Canada Games because of the experience of it. And the, you know, just the what are we doing all this training for side to things like you go there and you experience this, this great event, and uh, it's inspiring. And so then it, it inspires you to continue to work hard and to want to do more. So it's definitely the same as you move along in the in the pathway. There's never a guarantee, but there's no doubt in my mind that in exciting experiences, also against athletes that you don't always race against, it's really good to find new new types of competitive new new competition where you are truly just racing. You don't sort of know each other inside and out. Yeah, absolutely. And I think probably I, I agree with everything you've said. And what really stands out to me is like that combination of the experience, but also getting away from the watch a little bit and getting back to that purity of racing, which is something that I think we've all unfortunately moved away from a lot in more recent years. And I think there's, you're starting to see a bit of a return to that, but you know, with, with technology advancing, which can be really helpful in a lot of ways, but now we have things like wave light technology on the track, which gives you an indication constantly of whether you're on world record pace, you know, and I think some of these things can be useful tools in certain moments, but they can also detract from the pure competitive spirit of what a race is supposed to be. Oh, yes. And and training too, just the the whole essence of it. I mean, certainly you got to lay down some effective sessions that tell you exactly where you're at benchmark sessions, I call them. But uh, you know, in general, athletes of my vintage, if you will, we talk about this kind of thing all the time, just that, you know, in this generation now, there's such a bombardment of constant information, whether it's about a watch giving you everything or whether it's, uh, there's just, we had less support. We could have used more support in some ways, I suppose, but now it's it's almost too much trying to balance everything from your physio to your chiro to your massage to your strength and conditioning to your uh, cross training to what Strava is doing and what also the bombardment of 
instantly knowing what everyone else on the planet is doing. That might be the worst thing of all, to be honest. And I've seen that in uh, as a coach now on various national teams when I'm privy to the conversations that are happening amongst the athletes at a dinner table, for example. And, you know, did you hear what so-and-so did? And, oh, my God, he trains, he runs 130 kilometers a week, blah, blah, blah. You know, like right before competition. Can you believe that? I'm going to. I'm going to run a little further tomorrow. I'm only supposed to go half an hour. I'm going to go 40. You know, like it's, it's kind of crazy, but um, I don't, it's really definitely a juggle. And I know even with Tasha, you know, when I first started working with her, I said, I'm going to bring more of a free spirited approach. I like to call it run free. Cause what does that mean? Run free. For me, it just means run as you feel like, you know, see the, the sun and the mountains and the water and just run padding along on a pathway and have that vision of what you love about what it is we're doing. You know, I really believe that you've got to have that kind of joyful feeling in your training most of the time in order to have the longevity that she has and that others now have other women and particularly right now are really, really heating it up out there. Absolutely. It's so fun to see that happen. It's also fun listening to you, Lynn, because I can tell that you and my coach, Dave, are of the same vintage because that is so his approach as well. And he's the same way. You know, you have to put down some some key workouts every once in a while. But for the most part, it's like, okay, we're going to go to this park in Toronto and we're going to run around this loop and it's somewhere around 1.8 something K and we're going to do it like two and a half times and I don't really know what it'll turn out to with the K splits because part of it's really hilly and part of it's really flat, but you're getting strong. So who cares? <laughs> that, oh my gosh, that's exactly, <laughs> an, uh, you know, that is the approach that, that I do have for sure. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and we fight it and Tasha laughs, you know, it might be a new loop that we're doing and she might, <laughs> she might even go out there with her wheel and measure it out beforehand or put out a cone where there's a one K split, you know, and I'll be like, I don't care what it is, you know. You're out there moving the cone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, by now she she gets it. But it's, yeah, there has to be, I, perhaps athletes haven't stayed in as long because of, you know, maybe um, just too much. You start to put pressure, it's a, that pressure word, you know. it. You need some of that, but just need the right amount, you know. Well, and I think you've probably started to answer this, but I was going to ask what some of the key learnings that you had from your own career as an athlete are that you've brought into your life as a coach, because I know that you coach a wide range of folks. You work with recreational runners, you work with beginners, and then of course, you're working one of, with one of our best ever Canadian female distance runners. So, you know, you've talked a lot about that philosophy. Are there other key lessons that you've or, or yeah, parts of your philosophy that you've brought from your own athletic experience into your role as a coach? It's, it's, I was just thinking, it's hard to be a coach, actually. It's not an easy job because you want, you want so badly to provide the guidance for people that does allow them to achieve what they want to achieve. So right off the top, it's a really tall order. So I think what's important is that relationship honestly and the the kind of communication and really having that a synergy to tap into what makes a person tick so one coach isn't necessarily going to be the right coach for everybody you know what i mean so 
that's always been really important to me to be clear on on my approach with my athletes and and the things that are important to me and it really really is about the passion that I have for trying to bring out the best in people and so it's way more than the times on the track at the end of the day it really is about having an experience that brings you joy so you know sometimes you just achieve to the nth degree what your expectation is and and other times you don't and i think it's important to recognize both whether you quote win or whether you lose or whether you have a good day or a not so good day you acknowledge these things but you don't dwell on either of them we are not defined by any one performance in any aspect of life it's the overall picture so really that's i think the kind of philosophy that i was lucky to be around with my own coaches and my own experience and uh that's what's important to me to share now i i feel i understand when uh you know an athlete is frustrated maybe when they've had a day that is not their best day but it cannot permeate all aspects of one's life just as on the other side you know lord let's be humble here you know it it's about being inspired it's about doing the best that you can there's never more in any part of life that you can do than that well and i was going to ask you know how how you manage the emotional expectations of an athlete because i think that's a really that might be the most pivotal aspect of a coach in many ways. Um, and of course, you've been through the nerves and the and the pressure and finding your own way through all of that. And um, again, I think you've you've sort of answered that, but I, striking that balance with that person on that personal level means everything. and it, it can make a big difference. It does. and there and there are pressures. We do have expectations. You know, it's crazy. Every ability level has has expectations, you know. but there are two levels of that handling that i think and the the one is what it really i guess i just described that overriding journey you know but at some points uh an athlete needs to know well what okay that's fine lynn coach that's you know that's up in the clouds right now i want to do my best and i'm so nervous what do i do you know and so on that level there are many ways to uh help an athlete tap into their strengths and so that is between athlete and coach to figure out what that is but but for me in general it's it's providing uh you know the routines and the checklists and the ways to sort of train the mind to focus on what is the task at hand and doing that well ahead of time you know it's it doesn't all happen on on the the day of the competition you know these are the mental prep side of things is really really important and it comes more easily to some than others and so it takes it takes practice tash and i talk about oh i loved at the end of her marathon uh, experience recently that when she called me right after her race you know she said ah oh, coach i'm so glad we had the checklist the checklist it got me through it and it's funny the checklist when we were back months before you know every session i'd be riding along my bike and i said tash we have to have a routine you have to have a routine in your brain you're out there for a long time it's got to 
start with, you know, I mean, we could go on about this, but it was a pattern of thinking, you know, when it gets tough, you're going to need a pattern to focus on that's familiar and that's going to get you taking that next step. And so we worked on that mental side of things when she's, I said, work on it now, Tosh, you're feeling good. We're only at 5k in this little tempo session. So what's happening with your head, your shoulders, your arm, you know, like we went through this thing because when, when you are going to be in that toughest section of your race, when it begins at 30 K, you better be able to find that, you know, and finding, Oh, those mantras. That's a really important thing. The, the, the words that resonate for you, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about those voices inside, you know, like, Oh, this hurts. Why am I here? I don't want to do this because that happens. That can happen. And then of course, that's not really how you feel. So you've got the other voice that's like, of course, you want to do this. You love this. So, you know, you can figure out what resonates for that athlete, whether it is, I can do this. Stop it. Go away voice, you know, chuck it away. I can do this. I'm ready for this. I feel strong. I know I can do this. Like those are things that positivity you've got to find you know, because it's a spiral, you know, in the other direction, if you allow yourself to go there. In addition to her illustrious athletic and coaching careers, Lynn is also an Athletics Canada board member, and she's committed to using this platform to advocate for our athletes and for the longevity and success of our sport. Lynn has seen a lot of changes throughout her nearly five decades in track and field. And she reflects on these as she thinks about how best to influence the world of athletics moving forward. Sport and politics or sport and ideology, sport and activism have always been really closely linked. And in fact, you competed in your first Olympics where that was very true. The the, um, Soviet bloc actually boycotted those games in response to the U.S.-led boycott of the 80 games. I guess I'm wondering how you feel about the role of sport being connected to things like politics or promotion of ideology or things like that? It's it's frustrating now, I think. And it it always has been, I suppose, because like you said, when I was running, there were all these, there's always been a political issue surrounding pretty well every Olympic Games, I think. I mean, athletes aren't trying to worry about that sort of thing. You know, it's, it's really coming from the outside world and the you know, the organizers and things. And I think it's, it is frustrating uh, now with the costs of games and then to bring in the political side of things can be really frustrating. I don't know what to say as far as what I wish that it could, you know, sort of be, but uh, I I wish that we didn't have to, you know, use politics in, in the sporting world. Yeah, it's a, it's a hot debate right now eh, around things like Rule 50 and the right to protest on the podium or in the games. Um, and there have been so many thoughtful voices on both sides of that conversation. And I think it's also a real reflection of where we are right now in in our modern world. And and like you said, the connection that everyone has and social media being so prevalent and <laughs> the ability for people to share things so quickly, so instantaneously changes that a little bit probably every game's because those things change so significantly from, from year to year. I, I know that myself, if I had, as an athlete, if I had a really, you know, if there was an, you know, a certain issue that was truly burning in my soul, so to speak, and I was on a podium and I had somehow indicated that a certain sign would give my support to something or other, whatever that issue was, I would want to take it. 
I would want to take it. And that maybe contradicts the concept of politics or what have you, but it would be, it's a, it's a gesture that um, it can be so, it can be so powerful. I'm not sure you can mitigate that because a lot of the times it's not in, even intentional. It just isn't, it's an incredible thing to be fulfilled with such emotion and to kind of do such things peacefully with um, expression is not a, it's not a harmful thing. It's a, it's a freedom. So that's probably where I would sit with it. Are there any other major changes that you would like to see to the athletic landscape in Canada that you think would make things more equitable or just accessible for for more people in our sport? Hmm, that's a good question. We have to figure out a way to keep the interest in our sport. So those that make it through from, you know, elementary school to high school to the performance level, they know what we're talking about, but our pool of athletes needs to grow. And so to that end, probably one of the best things I've seen in this country that's evolved most recently is, is that position uh, connecting the national program with what's needed in the sort of within the at the provincial level in order to kind of figure out what are the needs so that we can promote our sport and provide that opportunity for everybody so that we can grow that that pool of athletes and that that interest you know so I think we're on the right track that way um it's exciting to have at the highest level to have, you know, athletes that succeed as a nation, there's nothing more exciting than watching a games and being able to be so excited to see that Canadian in the final. And we have that ability. We certainly have moved forward with our, our coaching education programs. I'm so proud and pleased with that direction. Um, being able to just that, there has to be a consistency across the board in the delivery of programs and philosophy. And so working together, uh, never have the provinces worked together so well to create this sort of national coaching program. Uh, So that's really, really awesome as well. Um, We're going to need to be even more creative. Our, our current, you know, staff and so on is doing a really good job of that, but we have to be, current with new ideas and ways to make our sport exciting because there are so many new sports on the horizon. There are so many different choices. The media around the planet doesn't necessarily always focus on the traditional side of, of things, and that wouldn't mean our, our sport. So whether that means we have our best sprinters, you know, downtown Toronto, whether that means measuring it up against a a moving train as we've done in some media and so on. Like, I think we have to be creative in that way. And uh, even with the upcoming Olympics, you know, wouldn't it be great if the, you know, pandemic became under control and, you know, we could actually host the games, Tokyo could host the games as they want to be able to do in my heart of hearts. I'm not sure that's going to be able to happen but is there a creative way to bring world-class competition to the world? Can we maybe have 
pockets of events that highlight in the best way possible to keep the interest of our sport alive and, and the other sports around the world alive in that way. I hope that, you know, that's what that's what it's going to, going to take moving forward, because I'm not sure that our planet will be the, as it once was for quite some time and our our own sport within within the country again we're going to have to find ways to showcase and to keep people motivated and you're right and capitalize on those promotional opportunities that we have i mean i think back to your era of competition and especially the early 90s there was just this it sounds like huge appetite for running and for elite athletes like you know racing at these huge indoor meets in ottawa where the the entire stadium was sold out and they were just running on boards or the um, the mile around Queen's Park here in Toronto that would have, you know, that the spectators would be five or six deep lining the whole course. And it sounds like maybe it's, we, we have too much choice now with other things to entertain us, but it does seem like there's been a real diminishment in the appetite for, for track and field and road running, um, probably worldwide, but in our country as well. And I know I'd love to see a resurgence of that. I can only imagine what you must be feeling around that. Oh, yes, because it's true. I, uh, yeah, the crowds were there and the, you know, there were some really innovative events and, you know, I was part of that running around Queens Park and the Fifth Avenue Mile in New York and so on. And, um, but even there, I don't know if in New York City, it's quite as big as it once, as it once was. So, I don't know what it takes. It takes a personality. It takes a certain kind of promo- promotion. It might take a gimmick of some kind just to get something interesting, you know, happening. I'm not sure what that is exactly. I mean, there's many of us that, that sit and discuss different ideas on what we could do. Even, you know, it's interesting, right in my community right here, there is a hill that's a really big, a really big hill. And in the pandemic, I've never seen so many people running, walking up this hill, you know, and I said, we got to put on a, call it the COVID climb or something. Like we need to just do something crazy. I think we'd have all these people in it because this is what they're doing. And, you know, it's just an example of something that hasn't happened before. We maybe have to think outside the box and come up with something new. I think about um, like, you know, you hear about pole vault competitions in the middle of shopping malls. Yes. And uh, we there were some meets in Europe in train stations. They had some pole vault in Lausanne, Switzerland, I believe it was right in the train station. But they weren't able to have, you know, a stadium crowd. And so they, you know, they had it in an open area that was and it was really well received and television was interested. So that made it made it fun. And so mm-hmm. it's just, yeah, it is being created and highlighting maybe certain events, maybe in our sport, we can't always have all events all the time at any one place. So maybe we share the load and spread it out. And then it's simpler and easier, less expensive to promote something if it's a little bit smaller scale, but then that particular event can have huge, you know, priority and interest in play. So mm-hmm. that might be a way to do things as well. So I know this is um, a somewhat odd question, given that we're living in this weird time of COVID with so much uncertainty, but what's next for you and what are you most excited about as we move into 2021? Well, personally, coach or otherwise, uh, COVID has 
slowed me down, if you will, work-wise. And I'm at a stage, you know, in life where, you know what, it's not so bad to slow down a little bit. So I've been able to spend, you know, more time even with my family being around. And uh, so that being said, I... I actually feel so excited about the fact that I perhaps will have more time to be adventurous as I am. I'm not sure what that means exactly, but uh, you know, I love to travel. I love to coach. I, these are things that I have time for. And so I've always believed that things will work out. Things will work out. We are in a very tough time right now, but we're, we're still learning from it we're learning to cope we're learning to cope with some really interesting difficult times um but we'll be better and stronger for it and we will then appreciate the freedom that we do have and i think that boy oh boy once our athletes on in our sport world now once we have the freedom to go and do what we love without restriction look out I just think we're going to see some there have been amazing performances under these restrictions and so it gives me goosebumps to think what will happen when we can race again the way we want to race thank you to Lynn for speaking with us this week check out the article about this sporting hero in the most recent issue of Canadian running magazine on newsstands now You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ShakeOut Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Stay safe, run strong, and we'll chat again soon. Yeah, it was, it's, it's wonderful. And, you know, it's not about the awards and medals because you know what, these things, they, they then move along and belong to someone else as time goes on. So it's, it's a, it's a privilege to sort of own that title at this time anyway.